following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In this passage, Jesus uh, is speaking about the problem of anxiety and worry. And as I shared last week, uh, the two words that he uses here, two Greek words, one is the word for anxiety, uh, which can have a positive meaning of just taking care of yourself, looking after the cares of your life. But the negative of that would be if we take that to such an extreme that we become obsessed with those worries. They... they uh, consume all of our thought and attention where we are worried, we are anxious about our uh, caring for our daily life. The other word that's used is the word for worry, and it's a metaphor of a ship out on a sea that's being tossed and harassed by the waves. It's in the midst of a storm and uh, is in threat of sinking. It's a great picture of what worry is, where we're just harassed and tossed and thrown about by feelings of worry and doubt that we will sink, that our life will not f- float. Um, and so that, that's kind of the picture. And Jesus is, is telling us that we should not worry. And he says it clearly in two different places. Verse uh, 22, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you what uh, will wear. Uh, in verse 29, he says again, do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. Right? So Jesus makes it real clear we're not supposed to do this. We are not supposed to worry. Um, you know, Don't worry, be happy. It's kind of Jesus' message here. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, it's just not that simple. right? Has anybody had that experience where it's just not that simple? Um, and, and again, to keep it in context, Jesus is talking here specifically not about the things that we have some control over. He's not saying here we should not work or we shouldn't try to you know, get food. He's not saying we shouldn't go grocery shop or earn the money to go buy groceries. He's not saying that. He's talking here specifically about the things beyond our control, the things that are, uh, uh, could, could rob us of our income or that could cause food shortages. You know, that's the thing now supposedly in some future year, the, the population is going to exceed the ability to produce food. Right? And some people worry about that, right? Um, the economy, all these things that we have no control over can become worrisome for us and sources of anxiety. And Jesus says, um, you know, take care of what you can take care of, but don't worry about the things outside of your control. Um, he says, stop worrying. Now, I talked about this last week. Maybe you went home, and this week you decided you're just going to stop worrying. And uh, did that work for anybody? It doesn't work for me, right? Just just deciding I'm not going to worry anymore doesn't doesn't work. I don't know about you, but for me, uh, when I'm troubled, when I'm anxious, sometimes I can suppress it during the day. But uh, I go to sleep at night, and 2 o'clock in the morning, boom, the anxiety hits me wakes me up. Anybody have that experience? Okay, if you're too young to have that experience, just wait till you get older. I'm, I'm telling you it's going to happen. right? And you, st- you wake up with this adrenaline rush. And there's some problem, some conversation, some issue in your life that's plaguing you, comes to the forefront, and all of a sudden you just feel this surge of adrenaline, fear, anxiety, right? And all of a sudden your good night of sleep just got wrecked. 
And if, if it was possible to just flip a switch and turn it off, I would love that. I'd love it to just go away, to say, oh, I'm going to stop worrying right now. And poof, I go back to sleep. Right? But that's not how it works for me. It keeps me up for hours, right? And, the, and this is how it works. The more I focus on not thinking about it, it's like, what, what do you think about, right? It just keeps coming back and attacking us, right? And Jesus understood that. He understands that uh, if this were all there were to it, you know, just to stop it, just flip, flip the switch, it would have been the end of his discussion. But he teaches a lot of other things in this passage because he knows that worry and anxiety are not that simple, that the things about our life uh, that, that plague us, that, that, that cause our minds to think and to worry, right, just can't easily be flipped off. And so we, we don't solve the problem by attacking it directly straight on. Um, instead, we need, to, uh, we need to focus on some other things. We need to put some things in place that Jesus talks about. And he gives, he gives us in this passage two principles. We'll look at uh, one principle this Sunday and, and one principle next Sunday because I couldn't do it all today. Right? Uh, the first principle uh, we're going to look at next week has to do with... Um, uh, you know, what life is about. He says life is more than just food and drink. So next week we'll look at what is really life about, important principle. But this, this morning we're going to look at the other principle, which is uh, the principle of, um, of faith, right? The principle of uh, knowing that God is going to take care of you. Um, our worry, he says, is ultimately a lack of faith. In verse 28, he puts it this way. But if God so takes care, close the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? He's okay, so not saying here you're people with zero faith. He's just saying you're people of almost zero faith. Right? You of little faith. And that ultimately is at the core of why we struggle with worry and anxiety. Because we don't really trust in God's care. And he says that's at the heart of the problem. Um, so our faith is microscopic. Using a sailing metaphor, if faith is to be the ship or the boat that carries us, the problem is that many of us are out in this vast ocean in a tiny little rowboat, right? where it doesn't take much waves to threaten us. And he said, instead, your faith should be like a mighty ship that is invincible, that can crash through the waves and be unfazed by them. So we need to grow our faith. Well, in order to do that, we need to really think a little bit about what exactly faith is. And as Mike shared, it's, it's Reformation Day, uh, and we want to give honor to our great founder of the Reformation, Martin Luther. So let's look at his... Definition of faith. That's what Martin Luther, how he defines faith. He says, faith is not that human illusion and dream that some people think it is. Okay, we'll come back to what that human illusion and dream is in a second. But it's not that. He said, faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. Uh, Martin Luther could speak this because he faced death because of his faith. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, 
and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Through faith, a person will do good to everyone without coercion, willingly and happily. He will serve everyone, suffer everything for the love and praise of God who has shown him such grace. Um, Let's take this apart a little bit. Uh, He says it's no illusion or dream. And the reality is that a lot of people define faith as... um, as a belief that is not based on knowledge. Okay, think about that. Okay, faith is what we believe that we don't know. Right? And that's really in many ways what the modern definition of faith is. It's this huge shot in the dark. It is a leap. We call it a leap of faith. In other words, it's this leap out into the unknown. Right? And oftentimes this is how faith is defined. And a lot of people believe or picture that this is what faith is. It is a leap into the unknown. It's, it's trusting in something I cannot know, I cannot see, uh, I cannot understand, but I hope that it's true. Right? It's, it's an illusion. That's why he, uh, Luther calls it an illusion. That there is someone or something out there to catch me when I leap. And I hope it's true. Right? It's like a dream or a wish that I hope very strongly comes to pass because I've staked my life on it, but not because I know anything about it. It's just a wish. Okay, that would be what Luther would de- des- describe as the illusion or dream of faith. And sadly, a lot of people, that's the extent of their faith. And I think that was true for the disciples here. And that's why Jesus said, your faith is little. It's microscopic because that's not really the substance of what faith is. Luther goes on, he says, faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace, so certain that you would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in, and get the words, knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God. Know this, faith is knowledge, right? The kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here that will keep you afloat in the storms of life is a faith that is based on absolute knowledge of God's grace and his character. If your faith is based on the unknown, you have no faith. You have no faith. You have very little faith. If your faith is just some kind of crazy leap in the dark that you hope something's out there to catch you, That is not faith. And if that's all you have, you better get a good supply of anti-anxiety drugs. Because you're going to deal with anxiety and worry the rest of your life. Because without greater certainty than that, the best you can ever hope for is just, you know, to worry a lot. So prepare yourself. But does anybody want to live there? No, no. We want to have this confidence that Jesus talks about. And we do that through a faith that is based on knowledge. Now, some of you will say, well, hold it, wait on a second. You know, I, I've read Romans 11, Romans, Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews, I've read Romans too. But Hebrews 11 says that faith is, is in, in things unseen and invisible, Right? So how can faith be based on knowledge when it's, faith, when it's supposed to be on what's 
unseen and invisible. And here's the issue we deal with that as modern people that Jesus and his disciples did not deal with. And that is we have been cursed with science. <laughs> Um, if you don't believe science is a curse, you need to understand what science is doing to the way we think. Now, I love what science does in terms of, you know, I got to drive here because of science. Okay. Some parts of it are good. Some parts of it are deadly destructive to your thinking. And one of them is this truth that says, if you cannot prove it scientifically, it cannot be known. It is not fact. Okay. And that's, that's the tenet of naturalism. It's what is taught in every school, uh, I would say every school, Christian or otherwise, either directly or indirectly, that you can only know what you can prove scientifically, that knowledge is limited and confined to that sphere of things that we can touch and feel, and that if it's invisible, if it's unseen, if it's beyond the scope of scientific proof or testing, that it can't be called knowledge because you can't really know that. And Jesus would say to that, oh, you've got a whole world of reality. You better be prepared for it because someday you're going to wake up in this reality that can't be tested. Right? You're going to wake up in heaven and there's no microscopic lab test that's going to be able to prove where you are, but you're going to be in the middle of it. Right? So you better be prepared to know stuff that can't be known through scientific method, that's beyond the realm of this universe. Right? Um, we must know things about God and his purpose and his program and his plan. Um, and, and they must be available to us or there is no faith. Right? Faith is based on the knowledge of these things. Uh, know what scripture says. By the way, Hebrew, uh, Hebrews 11.1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things uh, we cannot see. Right? Uh, of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. He's saying you can know what is invisible. Uh, beyond that, Second uh, Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Right? God wants to shine the light of the knowledge of who God is into your heart and life uh, in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, Ephesians 1, 17 through 19 says this, The God of um, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, it's a prayer, I'm sorry, I missed the first part, praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in what? The knowledge of him. God is revealing himself to you through scripture and through his spirit so that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt things about who God is and what he wants to do. Okay? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Okay, you go on and down the list, and there's dozens of scriptures that talk about what we can know to be true about God. Okay? It's just that we don't know these things through scientific proof. We know them in another way, but it doesn't make our knowledge of them any less uh, true, nor does it make it any less part of our conscious awareness. So faith is this. Faith is knowing as much as I know that the sun came up this morning, that God is there. 
right? That I have a full conscious conviction and awareness of God's presence with me in my life. That is faith. Anything less than that, anything that's just kind of conjecture or hope or, gosh, I hope, you know, I made this jump of Christianity. I hope it's true, right? It is not based on a deep conviction of knowing within ourselves its truth is an inadequate and failing faith. Um, Put it another way. Here's another uh, a picture of it, kind of on the sailing image, right? If you've ever been out on the ocean on a ship, uh, where all there was was, for our, as far as you could see, is ocean. Anybody ever been there? And you look, and there's just ocean in every direction. No land, no landmarks. All you got is the sun and the stars at night. And uh, you kind of wonder, like, how do they know where we're going, right? Because there's no road. We're not following a road. It's just same everywhere you go. It's just ocean. There's no little signs along the way, you know, uh, Thailand, 3,200 kilometers, right? You don't get that in the ocean. There's nothing. There's just water, right, as far as you can see. So how do they get where they're going? Well, they have some tools. They have basically four things. They have a map. They have a compass. They have a sexton. And they have faith, right? Okay, they have faith. So the map tells them, like, where they are in relation to what they cannot see. Because beyond the horizon, the captain or the person steering the ship knows that, according to the map, if I keep going this direction, I'm going to hit Japan, or I'm going to hit Korea, or I'm going to hit Singapore, right? They're, the map tells me where I'm at and, and where I'm going, even though I can't see that, right? And the compass and the sextant check the readings of where I am and prove uh, my location on that map. But it's ultimately a matter of faith that I'm sailing towards something I cannot see. Well, that's faith, right? Uh, they, they have faith on something they know. They know that that land is there. And if they keep going, they will hit the target. Well, how do they know that? Well, they know that because someone's been there before. And you say, oh, well, that's cheating, right? Because we don't get that advantage. But as Christians, we don't have a map of somebody who's been there before. Really? Right? Really? What, what is this? Right? What is this? Isn't this a map of somebody who's been there before? Right? It claims to be written by people inspired by God who have received revelation about who God is and what he's about and who have met him and encountered him, who know him, and who's sharing, who are sharing with us what they have learned and what they know. Right? It is our map. And as we look at it, as we study it, as we chart our course by it, Scripture gives us knowledge of who God is, what his purpose is, and who we are. Right? So, uh, so faith is not that mysterious. It's not that vague. It's not that uncertain. There's, a, there's absolute certainty to it when we know that Scripture is God's revelation to us so that we can know about him. By people who have been there. Right? And ultimately by Jesus, who not only has been there, but came from there. <laughs> he came from there to reveal to us who God is. And Jesus says, uh, the problem here is, is you are people of little faith. Right? You, you are not convinced. You do not have adequate knowledge about who God is and what he wants to do for your life. And that's why you're worried. Right? You do not know that God is going to take care of you. And you think wrongly that you have to take care of yourself because you don't understand what God wants to do for you. Um, 
So how do we expand this faith? How do we, uh, as Luther says, exercise a faith that is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace? How do we develop that? Well, Jesus uh, gives us uh, some pictures. He gives us some revelation here of what we need to know about God to help us grow our faith. Uh, So let's look at these. Uh, And it really centers around God's heart to care for us. Uh, Let's look at verse 24. We'll start there. Um, And as God shows himself to be uh, the one who cares for his creation, verse 24, he says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor they reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. And yet... God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? Okay, here's here's something you can know about yourself. Right, God wants you to know that you are worth more than a crow. Okay, okay, you need to put that on your T-shirt, stitch it on the wall. I have more value than a crow. Okay, Um, that's what He wants you to know. Um, God created the world, created everything in it, and he has great compassion and tender care for every part of it. Uh, Ravens, crows, you can call them whatever, same thing, are obnoxious, ugly birds, right? There's nothing, like I've never known anybody who had like a pet raven, and there's reasons for that, because they're obnoxious birds. They're noisy and they're dirty they were unclean, and in, in, in Bible times they were unclean because they're scavengers, which means they eat trash and dead stuff, like rotting dead stuff. Right? That's, that's what crows are. Um, they're black. Their beaks are way too big. There's nothing sightly about them. As far as birds go, they're not good for food, they're not good for pets, and they're not good to look at. In my book, they are worthless. Right? And I used to live on a place called Crow Hill. <laughs> Right. And, and it lived up to its name because there were ravens and crows everywhere on Crow Hill. And they were, I, I did not like them. For, for fun, we would go and shoot them. I probably shouldn't tell you that, but we did. Um, and, and God says that these birds, not only are they kind of worthless, but they're stupid. Right? He says they have no capacity to go out and, and sow or grow their own food. Right? You've ever seen a bird? Actually, I don't know of any bird that can do this that goes out and gets a bag full of seed and takes it out and plants it, right? They do the opposite. If you plant the seed, they'll come out and eat what you planted. But I've never seen a bird that had the capacity to sow seeds, nor harvest, right? They just don't have the, just don't have the gear for that, right? Um, and then there are some animals, some insects that do that, you know, bees and ants. Uh, they can't sow, but they can at least harvest and store food. Uh, but birds cannot do that. Crows cannot do that. And, and not only that, but they have no means of storing, right? So they, they can't build barns, they can't build storage sheds, they can't build a hive like bees do. Um, and so they're worthless and they're stupid. But, but notice what he says. He says, but God takes care of them. God lovingly feeds them. You know, when I was living on Crow Hill, I was really wishing he wouldn't. Because there were there were, there were there were no shortage of crows, and this is in a place where there was winter and snow, and and it got cold in the winter, and there wasn't not food. But these 
birds amazingly survived and flourished and thrived and multiplied in spite of us trying to shoot them. Multiplied, right? Why? Well, because God fed them. God took care of them. God watched over these stupid black birds, right? Why? Well, because he created them, and he doesn't think they're stupid, right? He made them, and they are of value to him. And so he takes care of them. And Jesus says, of how much more value are you than birds? How much more valuable are you to God than those silly birds? Infinitely more valuable. God did not create, create those birds in his image, but he made you in his image. You bear in your being some mark of, of the very essence of who God is. You were made in his image. Jesus did not come and die on the cross to save birds, but God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that you and I could have life so that we could be redeemed as we celebrate this morning in communion. Right? How much more valuable are you than birds? Um, do you have a knowledge of the worth you have to God? Right? Do you know how much your life means to him? Right? Uh, we need to contemplate more, I believe, the cross. Right? Uh, we need to spend a lot more time considering the sacrifice that Jesus made because he values you, because he cares so much about you, because he longs to save you, right? because of what you are worth to him. He gave up his own only son right? to save you, uh, to give you forgiveness and eternal life and fellowship with him forever. Uh, moving on to another piece of creation, verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you the truth, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today in the field and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Um, let me take a, as I talk about flowers, let me take a, a, a short sidetrack about wives. Okay, here's some advice for, for husbands, future you guys dating girls. Here's some, some good advice I'll spare you. Take good notes on this. It will save you great heartache, okay? Um, girls, it's, it's good to give girls gifts, right? And uh, it's good to give them things that they like, right? And believe it or not, girls don't like the same things guys like. Nobody told me. I didn't know. Right? I didn't know. I didn't see that in the operation manual. Right? And I got married, and uh, I I like gifts. I like I like things that that do stuff. Right? I like stuff. That, I like gifts that you can plug in and make noise. And the more noise, the better. And like that breaks stuff and like cuts stuff and smashes stuff. And I mean. Because I, as a guy, have an identity that I like to accomplish things. I like to do things. So I like gifts, and I value gifts that, that can do stuff or that can help me do stuff, tools and saws and, and even, even stuff like vacuums because at our house I would, I would vacuum the floor because I, I, I like doing stuff. And 
good vacuum. It's not like a good vacuum just sucking up all that dirt, right? Right? And I, I wrongly thought and understood that, that my wife would have the same appreciation for tools that I did. And so I remember buying her, I think it was actually a vacuum, uh, one time to show my great love and affection for her. Wow, she did not appreciate that at all. I'm telling you, don't buy a vacuum for her, right? You can buy it for yourself. Um, you know, for Christmas, say no to the vacuum. No vacuum. Right? Why? Well, because girls value something different, right? They value things that have worth and value based on their inherent worth or beauty. Beauty, right? Their inherent value, not because it can do something, but because it just has worth and value in itself. Okay, this was like a radical concept for me. I didn't know there was such a thing. But you mean something can have value just because it's just there, right? I, I had no idea. Because for me, everything that had value was connected to what it could do. And, and here's, the, here's the dangerous thing. Here's the, here's the whole thing. It's all very symbolic with girls, right? Another thing you've got to learn. See, when I, when I valued Denise because of what she could do, right, it was like I loved her because she could cook, right, which she could, right? But if that's the extent of my love, I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. Because she does not want to be one of my tools, right? She wants to be loved and valued and cherished because she has inherent worth and value to me. Because she is something that is beautiful to me. Because I cherish who she is as a person inside and out, regardless of what she ever does. Right? Well, this just blew my, this blew my brain. Right? This is like revolutionary stuff for me. And so I started to realize that because women think that way, uh, generally, this, I'm, I'm stereotyping, sorry. So I, I always have people come up to me, ladies say, who say, I like building things. I like, I like saws. It's like, I like you. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but generally, okay, generally, uh, girls uh, understand and appreciate inherent value based on inherent worth, beauty, right? So they like things like that. So say no to the vacuum. Say yes to the diamond ring. Right? Girls, amen. Anybody for that? Amen. I thought there a lot more amens to that. Okay, forget the diamond ring. Get the vacuum. <laughs> no. Uh, women cherish. They like things that have value inherently, not because of what they do as a tool. Right. So so it's good to buy girls flowers, which to me is the dumbest thing ever. Right? A, t- a flower, it can't hammer anything. It can't screw in anything. It can't, can't break anything, right? And what's worse? Here's the worst thing about a flower. Like, at least the diamond lasts forever. The flower dies the day you buy it. I mean, you buy it, and the next day it's just dead, right? It's like pointless, right? But not pointless, right? Not pointless. It has great power because it's... It's, it's valuing something that has beauty, even in its temporary beauty, it's valuable, right? And, and Jesus says, he says, you know, God so cares about the flowers of the field that he adorns them with a beauty that, that exceeds what Solomon could have come up with, right? And it's true. You look at flowers, they are, they are beautiful Grace with God's creative hand in, in spectacular ways, in ways that, 
the greatest king ever cannot rival the beauty of a flower. And, and Jesus affirms, and yet it's here today and tomorrow you throw it in the furnace. Right? It doesn't last. Uh, it does have some utility. He says literally you throw it in the oven and they would actually use grass because wood was scarce. They would use grass to fuel their cooking ovens to make bread. So it did have some value in, the, in that day, at least make bread with it. But not much value. It's kind of worthless. And yet God goes to such great lengths to robe the flowers and the grass in such beauty. And so he says, how much more will he clothe you? Right? And again, it's a great picture of what gives you value and worth. Right? God clothes you. He values you. Um, and see, ladies understand this. God values us not because of what we do for him. Right? We, we in many ways are like that flower. We have a fading beauty, but the beauty is inherent in who we are as a person, as his, as his children, right? as those God cherishes and loves. And we are of great value to him. We are made in his image. Right? And so if God treasures you like that, if he, if he has made you and created you with such inherent beauty and worth to him that he values you regardless of what you do for him. He loves you, who you, who you are, who he's made you as a person. Right? He cherishes you. If, if he cares so much for you, would he not take care of your clothes? Right? Would he not dress you like a king? Right? Will he not provide abundantly to to give you um, dignity and, and value and worth and beauty. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so God takes care of his creation, and if he takes such careful care of his creation, won't he take care of you and I? Absolutely. But it, it's even greater than that, because there's even a, a deeper level. And let me go over this real quickly. Verse 29, he says, Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink or be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Your Father knows that you need them. See, God loves the world, and he takes care of the ravens and the flowers as, his, as creator. Uh, and he takes care of you as creator, but so much more than that, because he's not just creator to you and I, he is father to you and I. Um, he is our Father who knows what you need. He's not just Almighty God. He is your tender and loving Father. Um, and that, that has at least two meanings. First of all, it's about relationship. Right? You have a relationship with God as a child to a father. Uh, and I know for many people, um, the idea of father is painful. Right? Our earthly fathers have so scarred us and wounded and hurt us that the whole idea of father is something we run away from. And I'm telling you, if you want to really understand who God is to you, you, you need to find healing from that and can you get over that, right? Because he wants to be a father to you. Uh, not like your earthly father, but in the sense that, Je that, that he was father to Jesus. Right? Throughout all eternity, it's been God the Father and, and God the Son in Christ living in relationship with the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, that needs to be the gauge and measure for what it means for God to be your father. Right? Um, you know, we can't even imagine how much God the Father loves Jesus. 
but Jesus was aware of it. He knew it. Um, several times God publicly acknowledges Jesus. And what does he say every time? He said, this is my beloved son. Right? Publicly he says, look at my son who I love dearly. Right? Uh, I am well pleased with him. Uh, the idea of dearly loved is one who is deeply cherished, valued, and treasured. Right? That was God the Father's relationship towards Jesus. Jesus understood that. In five, John 5.20, he said, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. Jesus knew how much he was loved by the Father. Do we know how much God loves us as his child? Uh, Jesus died... And through his death, we have been adopted as sons. Right? We have been adopted as sons. Again, okay, I know it's kind of politically in, in, incorrect, uh, not politically correct. You know, Jesus was not real into politically correctness. Uh, but it's important that you were all adopted as sons. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we were adopted as his children where God wants to love you as a father loves a child. Right? Not just as creation, but as his own children. So it's, it's relationship. Secondly, it's position. Uh, it's important they were adopted as sons because in, in Jesus' day, only sons received the inheritance. Right? And Jesus is saying, girls don't get left out. Right? He's not dissing you because you're a girl. He's including you because you are adopted uh, as sons, as those who receive the full inheritance. So what that means is we are joint heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Everything, right? Everything that God's created, everything God is, we are heirs with Christ. So if, if we're inheriting everything God owns, is it silly to worry about crazy things like food and clothing? Yes, right? Yes, right? We are his children, right? Do we, do we have a knowledge of how much that means to God. Isaiah 49.15 puts it this way. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can a mother forget her nursing child? Well, it's hard to imagine. But, but Isaiah says this. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? Well, even if that were possible, which it's not likely, but even if that were possible, God says, I would not forget you. Right? That's how great his love is for you and I. Last thing, uh, he's a father, but he's a father who knows best and who knows all. Verse 30 says this, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Uh, he's a father who knows everything. He knows what you need. Uh, and he knows what you need long before you do. What are you going to need three years from now? Right? Anybody know? Okay. Uh, does anybody know the next time you're going to have to go into the hospital and pay some huge hospital bill? Or you're going to have a heart attack, you're going to have cancer, or you're going to have one of your children uh, get very sick. Does anybody know that? Anybody? anybody? No, of course not. God knows. Right? Uh, do any of you know when your support's going to take a huge hit and you're going to have a third of the support you have now? Does anybody know that? Don't know that. Anybody worried about that? God knows. God knows what's going to happen a month from now, six months from now, five years from now. He knows. Uh, he knows. Anybody know? Uh, 
in five years from now what you're going to have to pay for insurance premiums? Okay, you don't want to know. I'm just telling you right now. You don't want to know, right? And how much more support you're going to have to raise and all this to pay for insurance you can't even use, right? God knows, right? Everything, every need, everything that will come across your path, every obstacle, every trial, every tribulation, everything, God knows, right? He knows. And it's not just information. It is knowledge that he will use to take care of you. That's the point. He will remember. He knows. He's paying attention. He's tuned in. Right? And he knows long before you, you know or will be aware of these needs, and he's taking care of it. Um, and there, there is a condition. We'll see this next week. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. God's promised to meet our needs. There, there are conditions. We have to be kingdom-focused. We're going to talk about what that means next week. But, uh, but here's the deal. You may say, yeah, well, you know, he knows all those needs, but honestly, he hasn't always come through. Anybody feel that way? Okay. There were times when I had very concrete, real specific needs, and God did not meet my need. Right. What went wrong? Well, there's two options. Number one, you were not really seeking his kingdom. You may have thought you were seeking his kingdom, but you weren't really fully seeking his kingdom. And God's just trying to get your attention so that you will. Because he loves you so much, he does not want you walking outside of this this realm, this reality of his kingdom. Second thing is that uh, what you think you need, you really don't need. In fact, it's hurting you. Right? Oftentimes what we want God to do is make us comfortable. And it's not our needs that really are an issue. It's our excesses. Remember, Jesus said earlier, life is not about the abundance of your possessions. The reality is most of us could live at least a month without even food. right? So if God brought you down to the bare ground where you had zero and you didn't even have food, he hasn't forgotten about you. Okay? The day you starve to death, then you can start to worry. But it'll be too late, so don't worry about it, right? Uh, God could take us way down and still be showing his care and his love. And when he does that, it's not because he does not love us. It's because he is our Father who knows best what we really need. And he knows that what we need is more of him and not all the stuff we're trusting in. So he in his grace sometimes will rip it out of our hands, and he will not provide what we think we need because he wants us to uh, turn to him and hunger after him alone. Because that is ultimately what we need more than anything else. Um, you know, we, we have got to know this love. And the reality is that we all know it in our head as theology, right? We all know, yeah, God loves me, Jesus died for me. But we do not know it in daily experience and in concrete uh, conscious awareness. Right? And, and we've got to grow in that. Right? We have got to start seeking after God, seeking Him through His Word to the place that we know, we know God loves us. Jesus says, and we'll talk about this next time, but just as a check, Jesus says, you know, sell your possessions, Right? Uh, do you have the kind of faith that you could get rid You could. I'm not saying you need to, but do you have this kind of faith that you could get rid of everything you own 
and, and tell your supporters to stop giving and just have this confidence that God is going to take care of you. Well, that's just insane. Who would do that? Well, people have done that, right? Uh, St. Francis of Assisi did that because he saw the corruption that wealth brought in his own family. And so he even took the shirt off his back, threw it down in the courtroom, and walked out of the courtroom, leaving behind his wealthy father and all of his inheritance, and walked out into the snow almost naked and vowed to never own anything again for the rest of his life. And he did not starve to death. He lived a long time. In fact, people kept giving him stuff. Uh, he kept trying to turn it away. Finally, somebody gave him a mountain with a castle on it. Right? Some tough breaks, right? God took care of him. Uh, A.B. Simpson, famous preacher back 100 years ago, was pastoring a church and was convicted by this message. And so he told his congregation, I want you to stop paying me a salary. I want to just trust God. Right? Could you do that? Well, you could do that if you were absolutely convinced of God's loving care for you. We need to get to that place. We need to develop that kind of faith that's that rock solid, convinced of God's loving care for us. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.